Um, all right, well, welcome back, everyone. Um, I'm Matt Goodman. I uh, work on international economics here at CSAS and delighted to work with Bill and, and colleagues on this, um, this um, interesting event. And uh, we hope to this session, this breakout session, which is, on, which is called Out with the Old, In with the New, which is about uh, the old order, the new order, the WTO, should it be salvaged, should it, is it worth salvaging? Um, and how to do that. Uh, if you were intending to be somewhere else, uh, either in the three zeros session, that's over there, or the China session, that's over there. Uh, but we're delighted to see a, a good group here um, on this um, somewhat arcane topic, but I think a very important one to this conversation, because obviously the, the order, the framing of, of institutions and rules that um, has governed um, international trade, you know, basically since World War II, is uh, clearly under stress. And, um, and the question, the fundamental question that we're asking here is, is whether it is under such stress that it, uh, that it is ir um, um, unfixable um, and whether, in fact, we need to um, uh, try and try something different. Um, and so that's the kind of fundamental question we're addressing here. We're probably going to end up talking about um, a lot of things. We're not probably going to get into the arcania, the details of uh, the dispute settlement mechanism and special and differentiated treatment and arcania of the WTO unless you want to. Because by the way, as Bill, I think, said in the earlier session, uh, we're meant to very much involve you guys in this because at the end of this session or these breakout sessions, uh, the facilitators are coming back on stage with Bill to report out. And we're supposed to report, I'm supposed to report out on behalf of this group what our kind of broad um, uh, areas of conversation were, but even if we can to try to come to some sort of broad consensus on, on some aspects of this set of questions. That may be impossible and probably will be, um, but, um, but at least we're going to try. And so stay tuned because I'm going to actually um, pull you into the conversation. In fact, I'm going to do that in one second. As soon as I just quickly introduce the two uh, uh, speakers here, we're, we're sort of doing a, a, an Oxford-style debate of a, a pro and con, uh, the, the topic at I'm hand. Uh, and and <laughs> shockingly, uh, Derek is the con. But first, Kathy Novelli, I think every, both of these people are well-known to this audience, I'm sure, but Kathy Novelli is president of Listening for America, which is a nonpartisan organization dedicated to forging a new vision of U.S. international trade engagement. Um, and as everyone knows, she was Under Secretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment uh, in the um, Obama administration. Um, and before that, was at Apple and USDR and other uh, places. We all uh, know Kathy well. Um, and uh, she's going to speak in a second uh, on my other side, I'm not going to say uh, politically which side, um, uh, Derek Scissors, again, is also well known. Uh, he's at the um, American Enterprise Institute, and he uh, focuses on uh, Chinese and Indian economies and uh, U.S. relations with Asia. He has a very well-known uh, China investment tracker, uh, which uh, is, a, is a really important um, asset for all of us and um, uh, very helpful. We use it a lot um, here at CSAS, and so appreciate Derek's work. Um, you'll find that, as he just indicated, uh, Derek doesn't have very strong opinions about, uh, about these or other topics, so uh, we're going to have to pull some of that out of him. Before I have uh, them speak, though, what I'd like to do is I want to just get a show of hands as a kind of lay down here. Basic question um, related to the topic at hand here, which is you know, from the viewpoint of U.S. interests, okay, so I know there are others in this room who are representing uh, foreign governments and so forth, but put yourself in the, in the shoes of, of the United States and our interests. Um, from the U.S. perspective, 
is um, is the I'm going to I'm going to be more specific in this first question than just the order generally. But is the WTO uh, salvageable? Is it worth salvaging uh, for the U.S. for U.S. interests, or uh, do we need to do something? Do we need to have some new uh, institution, new new approach uh, to um, uh, regulation of international trade? Um, and so that's the kind of fundamental question. So if you believe kind of, and I think broadly speaking, we all are either believers that, that flawed as the system is, it, it, it can and should be reformed, or we believe uh, it's so flawed that it cannot be reformed. And if, even if that's a 51-49 proposition, I want to kind of push you to vote one way or the other, just so we can get a sense right now of whether we think that the existing order, especially the WTO part of it, is... Um, is worth fixing and is fixable um, or, or not, and we need to try something new. So if you're in the first camp, in other words, think that the, uh, the WTO and the, the order around it is um, salvageable and worth salvaging, can you raise your hand now? Raise it high so we can see. We're not going to count hands, but I just want to get a general sense, okay? And I'm going to, in this case, I'm going to be player manager, and I'm going to uh, vote on that side. See, I'm outnumbered. Okay. Uh, there we go. Make that clear. Um, <laughs> if you um, if you believe that we need to kind of throw it out and start something new, uh, try a new approach. Um, please raise your hand. Okay, uh, um, um, a small but you know significant number. You'll get your money later. Okay, <laughs> maybe you know we're we're going to ask the question again and and we'll see whether um, folks have have a different view. But um, let me start by letting Derek uh, go first and lay down a few a few thoughts. Go okay. ahead. Yeah, so uh, CSIS does a number of events. This looks really good. I will say they've clearly made a mistake because the title of this event is A Positive Trade Agenda, and they invited me. Um, uh, so, you know, nobody's perfect. Uh, so my point is not that we should, we should leave or try to actively destroy the WTO, but it is that we should just ignore it. So I hope that isn't too weak a, uh, a counterpoint to the, to the salvage claim. Um, and I'll, I'll start with a country I know best, which is China, but I, I won't end there. Um, so if, this is going to be a little bit China-focused, but it won't be confined to China. And in fact, I'll criticize the United States as well. Um, and, you know, some people are, have a gift, and that's mine, criticizing everybody. Uh, IP and subsidies are the biggest issues we have with the Chinese. And let's look at, at how tractable those are. The Chinese previously a, a, a promised to abide by WTO rules on coerced tech transfer. They claim they have, and that multinationals voluntarily hand over the tech in exchange for market access that they're not being coerced. So either they've abided by the letter of the WTO rule, and the WTO uh, in this area, which is crucial to the United States, remember we're talking about it from an American perspective, is useless, or I can't really believe I need a microphone, but, <laughs> or they haven't even abided by the letter, and we have a major member that has cheated and lied for years with no WTO action. So either the WTO in this area, which is probably the most important point for the United States right now in our policy, has been useless, or worse, um, the w, you know, we've had active cheating and the WTO has done zero about it. Uh, on subsidies, you know, I don't think it gives away too much in the talks. We have not been able to get the Chinese side to even budge on subsidization of SOEs while wielding a tariff gun that probably many of you think is excessive and dangerous. I, I see no possibility under direct threat from their most important trade partner in terms of supplying foreign exchange, which is crucial to the Chinese at this point, that a you know, WTO reform is going to convince them of anything. And I don't, you know, I don't 
know what people here are going to say. I'm going to, I'm going to pick out an argument that none of you may have, but I've heard it repeatedly, um, so I'm going to attack it uh, preemptively, and I apologize if this just discredits anyone's view because you're, you, you, know, we, you wouldn't make this argument. The whole idea of saying we're going to convince, the world is going to convince the Chinese it's in their interest to reform is absurd, and just stop it. And if you don't want to stop it, and we go down that path, please contact me, because I will bet Mitt Romney money that it will fail. <laughs> and if you don't follow American politics, that's $10,000 that you mention at the drop of a hat. Uh, it's not as trivial to me as it is to Mitt, but I'm very confident that, that, uh, that I'd win that bet. So we're not going to convince the Chinese to change on subsidization of SOEs. That's silly. They're not even moving an inch under threat. Now, the US could make bigger threats, but the WTO can't. So on subsidization, the WTO is also useless. I'll make one more point, which is China-specific, sort of, um, but it's, it's more general than that. and also gives me a chance to take a shot at TPP, which I love doing whenever I'm at CSIS. Uh, broad agreements take a long time to implement. They take a long time to modify. Uh, violations of those agreements take a long time to litigate, using the word litigate loosely. China can change its practices really fast. Um, you know, maybe competitive neutrality in the TPP was the best that could be negotiated. I'm not making an argument that I know how the negotiations went because I don't. But I will say that uh, with regard to disciplining China, the TTP, TPP provisions on competitive neutrality were an utter failure. Chinese could have made adjustments in no time at all. So, you know, that's, the TPP is smaller and more agile, presumably, than the WTO. And there is no way those provisions could have worked to discipline the Chinese. I just, it's an illustration of large multilateral agreement versus speed of the, uh, China's ability to change their, their policy. Um, all right, so I said I wasn't going to talk, just talk about China. Let's talk about that wonderful friend of multilateral trade, India. Um, the latest from the Indians, and I, I won't go over the whole history because it's rather sordid, is they're balking at the e-commerce rules. And uh, the reason I think this is, this is uh, negotiating new e-commerce rules, I think, I think this is relevant, is it, it touches on core Indian refusals. Don't touch our ability to tax because we're always spending more money than we bring in, so we need ability to tax. And we consider almost everything to be a violation of our sovereignty. And you add to that the Indians' longstanding protection of their farmers. And the main problem in Indian farming is that the average plot size is shrinking. Nothing to do with the WTO. But the Indians act as if all international trade is a threat to a domestic situation they themselves have created. Uh, I don't see how the WTO improves India on any of these items. Their protection of their tax revenue, their prickliness on sovereignty, their own mismanagement of, of, of uh, rural, the rural land situation. India is a major player in the WTO, not China level, but major. We again see WTO's inability to, to act. And let's not forget the biggest player in the WTO, the United States. Um, the 232 on steel and aluminum was pretty dubious. The 232 on cars is potentially six times bigger, and it's much more dubious. The US is abusing the national security you know, loophole, if you want to call it that, in the WTO. Um, I, you know, I'm, I criticize China all the time. I, sometimes people associate me with the Trump administration. The 232 on cars is a terrible idea. Um, and you know, what's the WTO going to do about it? It's not going to do anything effective. We are moving from a world where national security, the national security provisions in the WTO, the vague, you know, let countries do what they want provisions, is an irritant to being a major barrier. It's because of us. The WTO can't discipline us either. So it can't discipline the Chinese. It can't discipline the Indians. It can't discipline the United States. If I knew anything about Europe, I'd throw the Europeans in there too. 
Um, all right, what's the alternative? And I'll, I'll try to be quick here. Uh, the, start, the start of the alternative it has to be unilateral. And you know, a lot of you are thinking, great, we're gonna have a unilateral alternative to WTO led by Donald Trump. Okay, you know, I can see why that isn't appealing, but remember that eight months ago, Congress passed a reform of U.S. investment law on an enormously bipartisan basis, which is now being emulated by our partners. Not copied, emulated. We can, that was a big step in the right direction, not perfect, we can do this where we make up our minds on our own policy and other people take a cue from that. They adapt it to their own circumstances, they say this is good, this is not good. Uh, we cannot do that when we haven't settled our own minds on IP enforcement. And I can tell you right now, we have not settled our own minds within this administration. Forget the Congress, the parties, the public on IP enforcement. Talking about the WTO fixing that policy when the US has not made up its own mind is fantasy. Just, it's ridiculous. We have to make up our own minds first. Um, that's, so, so I've, you know, I haven't traced out how that looks because it's going to look different in different topics. It's going to look different on IP than it does on subsidies than it did on investment. But the first thing is the U.S. gets its own house in order. Um, now, I will close on one bit of good news, which is rare for me, but I don't think the system really needs the WTO to be an active, vibrant, working institution uh, because I think the system is based on the dollar. And as long as the U.S. is responsible with dollar provision, we will still have a globalized uh, international economic system. Um, now, you might say, well, the, US, the federal deficit doesn't look like the U.S. is being responsible with the dollar system, but the overall U.S. debt burden is down because of uh, lower private sector uh, debt as a share of GDP. Foreign holdings of treasuries fell a bit in 2018. The Fed is quite globally uh, conscious, if not you know, if not perhaps too much. The core of globalization historically is U.S. wealth growth and monetary accommodation of that globalization. It's not the WTO. So I'm not throwing out the global economy in my view because I think the global economy is actually based on U.S. wealth and use of the dollar, not the WTO. But I think the WTO at this point does not, cannot possibly solve the problems we have with China, India, or the United States. Okay, well, not much to work with there, uh, Derek. We may have to call you back in to make something, uh, say something provocative that we can work with. Um, so that's great, thanks. Um, Kathy, you don't have to respond to that. Just uh, give us your thoughts on, you know, the question of the WTO or more broadly uh, the trading system, uh, the, the order more broadly and how you see it and the possibilities of fixing it or whether we need to start over. Great, thanks, Matt. Well, I think what I'd like to do is um, go back to pre-WTO, pre-GATT, which was kind of the precursor, and, and just remember a little history here, which is when there was no system, there was chaos. Um, a lot of people think that the protectionism that was going on in the U.S. with Smoot-Hawley tariffs and other tariffs, many others, and, um, and in other countries, you know, was at, at least a significant contributor to the Great Depression. Um, and so I guess from my standpoint, I, I would not argue that the WTO is perfect, nor would I argue that it's gonna solve every problem that we encounter today. Um, but I think that a lack of a system would not serve our interests. Uh, and so I think a system, as you said, Matt, as imperfect as it may be, is, is better than no system. And uh, the system that um, is in place now definitely needs augmenting. Will it solve every single problem? I would argue it would not. But 
trying to, to frame a system that's gonna solve every single problem, I think is maybe beyond just an exercise in futility, maybe losing focus on you know, what is it that a system can do. And what has a WTO done? It's brought down tariffs worldwide. Um, it has put in place some sort of basic rules. Um, and yes, there are, there are those who don't follow those rules to the letter in every time, but by and large, those basic rules are there and they provide some stability. And I think that is very important. The other thing the WTO does is it has uh, what's called the trade policy review mechanism. And, and I apologize if that's arcane, but it is an incredibly detailed look at every country in the WTO and what is going on in their system um, where uh, the other member countries can ask questions and document what's going on. There's a review every two years of the big countries, US, EU, China, uh, and then less frequently others. So it provides us some, some transparency. Again, I'm not trying to say it's 100% it's perfect, but it does give us a, a foothold, and I think that's very important. Um, I would agree that, you know, uh, there's are issues of noncompliance. Um, I think that the, the problem, however, is that the conundrum is that if you start down a path where you say, well, okay, we need to force everybody to comply, and the WTO is gonna be the mechanism through which that force takes place, uh, then you're basically limiting our ability to do unilateral things, and you're limiting every country's sovereignty. And I'm, I don't think it's realistic that we, the US, or, or most other countries would agree to have a, an international body control, you know, Know, their economic decision making in that way. Um, and the way the WTO is set up is uh, there are consequences for um, bad behavior that's been adjudicated, so there are consequences. Um, at the same time, if you decide you don't want to make a change, as the EU did in many of the cases that we've had with them over the years, um, for political reasons or other reasons, you have to suffer the consequences. And so is, does that mean that you're going to do what, what lawyers call specific performance, where the WTO is going to say, you must behave in this certain way? No, but I don't think we would want a world where that is the case, where bureaucrats of the WTO are somehow you know, running our economy. Um, in terms of, of things that I think uh, can be effective, um, one of the things that's really slowed down the WTO is the need for consensus. And so that means the smallest country can hold up, you know, major initiatives. Um, and so this sort of going uh, maybe outside the WTO and using the plurilateral approach, I think, has been somewhat effective in certain sectors, like the Information Technology Agreement, which brought down tariffs on uh, on uh, information technology products on a worldwide basis. And so I think we need to look at that. That kind of then tucked itself under the WTO and the WTO expanding to allow for more of that where you have countries who are like-minded and want to make progress I think is a very good thing. Um, a couple of other points that I would make. Um, one is 
the WTO itself isn't the one who decides um, that it's going to discipline the uh, a bad behavior. A country has to decide that they object to something that is going on. So, for example, with respect to technology transfer, the WTO itself isn't going to say, oh, we're, we're undertaking a dispute settlement with you, China, because you're, you're forcing technology transfer. One of the member countries of the WTO would have to complain and bring a case and say, we object to this and it violates these rules and here's how. Um, that said, I think there's a couple of things that, that also have to be looked at. And one of them is um, how do we uh, engage on some of these new areas. Uh, how do we engage more robustly on services, which at this point is 77% of the U.S. economy? Um, how do we make sure that there's market opening uh, more robustly? And there, there's a plurilateral negotiation that's kind of moribund right now that I think needs to move forward. How do we engage more on digital trade? Um, we're not going to, again, solve every problem of digital trade through the WTO, but I think having frameworks is, is useful and important. The other piece of this, I think, and, and a lot of folks have talked about this a long time, is that it just takes a really long time to go through dispute settlement. And if you're a business, and you know, from my own business perspective, you know, something taking three years to get resolved by that point, if you're in a technology business, you're on to the next thing. So I think trying to really innovate some ways that at least you can get a determination in a more quick way would be very important. Um, two other things that I would suggest. Um, one is, um, and I encountered this as undersecretary, there is right now a silo of rules that are governing the environment and countries that are getting together and looking at how can they uh, work together on conservation, on uh, illegal fishing, on you know various things. Um, and then there's the WTO. And the WTO is just not integrated very well with that. And uh, if we think about the future, I certainly foresee that there's going to be many more uh, agreements uh, about that govern the environment, where people are trying to advance more conservation ethics. And the WTO has a real antipathy for that um, and has sort of said, no, you know, we're going to reinterpret whether these are valid or not. And I think that that meshing really needs to come together, and the WTO can't hold itself above things that a majority of other states are agreeing to. The last thing I would say, and um, as in my, in my hat as president of Listening for America, we've done 100 listening sessions and focus groups around the U.S. just in the last year, and we're doing more now, and we're talking to people from all walks of life, um, from, you know, factory workers to bank tellers to mayors of cities, so kind of a whole wide range of people, business people. It has been very clear to me, not that there's an antipathy towards trade, but there is just a complete void of um, factual information about not just the WTO, but how does trade work, how do supply chains work, and people really don't understand that. And so what has happened is um, 
that there's a lot of misinformation that kind of fills in those gaps. But we found that people actually really do want to know the facts, and they really want to understand this. And so I think there's a huge role of education for the WTO about what does the WTO even do, but also how do open markets uh, work and why do they benefit the individual. And the, so the WTO is in its own world. We're all kind of in our own world talking to ourselves um, in you know ways that we can talk about arcanity of the things that Matt said we weren't going to talk about. Um, but we can't move forward globally without public support, and, and I think we really have not done a very good job of that. And so, to me, that is something that we need to think seriously about and a role that the WTO um, could fill as well. Okay, great. Really um, helpful um, perspectives from both sides. Not, I mean, very different perspectives, but but actually some um, not necessarily irreconcilable uh, differences there. I want to bring you all in pretty quickly, but let me just ask each uh, a challenge point to each each side. So, Derek, first of all, what about the point that before the WTO or the the, the order there was chaos and in a post WTO world, is there not a risk of chaos if everybody does the unilateral thing? Um, isn't that uh, going to potentially, you know, on a net basis, hurt our interests more than the benefits of getting, you know, some specific uh, benefits from a unilateral pressure sort of approach? Um, two responses. One, I think, convincing. The other one, maybe not so convincing. Uh, there's no comparison to the current system and the, and the pre-war system. Again, as I said, the main driver of globalization is not the WTO, and I, here's, here's, here's my proof. If the U.S. stops running current account surpluses and stops providing dollars to the world, there's no global currency, that's the end. That's the real story of the 30s. It's not no WTO or no GAD, it's currency blocks. And we are you know, fixing that. Uh, money is more important than rules. In global trade, sorry if you evolved. I'm an economist. Most of you are lawyers. Maybe we're natural enemies. Uh, money is more important than rules. Um, so if the U.S. continues to provide the dollar uh, dollars on a reasonable basis, you know which is that issue? Which one place where Kathy and I, I think agree that we need internal uh, decision making? Um, maybe I don't want to put words in her mouth, but if the U.S. continues to provide dollars, we're not going back to the 1930s. It's not on the table. Now, a harder question is: Well, we have a framework. You're gonna, you want to ignore the framework, is my point of view. That risks like having the framework blow up. But either way, we're creating the, the potential for instability here. And yes, whenever you create the potential for more instability, and I, I acknowledge that, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying, oh, it'll all be stable after, you know, if we ignore the WTO. I'm not claiming that. Whenever you create the potential for more instability, you don't know what the outcome is. Um, you know, dealing with China a lot, I find that instability is like a four-letter word. And I always say to the Chinese, you know, if you're in a prison somewhere, uh, instability is not a four-letter word. Uh, you'd like to get out. Uh, I don't consider, in a way that I, I think is different than the 1990s, is different than the 1960s, I don't consider the stability of the situation to be advantageous to the United States any longer. Right? So, uh, yes, there is instability. And whenever there's instability, you don't go, I know the outcome will be better. I don't know the outcome will be better. I find the risks now more than acceptable because we're in a situation that I think harms American interests. People representing other governments, I'm not speaking on your behalf. I'm talking, you know, this is a debate for the United States. So I'm not making a claim that the world will be better off with a WTO that gets ignored. I'm claiming that the U.S. will be likely better off that the WTO gets ignored. Okay, great. Kathy, um, so... You know, you said that the 
when it was set up in the post-war era, this order, um, you know, provided these these benefits, um, and uh, that's true. But that was at a time when, as Derek said, I mean, it was a different era. There were different uh, players involved. You had basically a group of like-minded, advanced countries that were sort of writing the rules for kind of our system, and we were the main players and the main traders. Um, the world has really changed, and now you have these other players, and you have a different set of substantive issues as well. But just, you know, is it not um, true that, is it not, you know, isn't there a point that, that a country like China, which is a very different model from the one that was envisaged when, um, when this, this order was set up and when the WTO specifically was set up, um, you know, now has such a large position, has such a different approach, um, you know, that maybe this, this is the, what was set up then is fundamentally not, not right for this system. And don't we, how do you fix the, the issues, the big issues like SOEs and, um, uh, you know, the fundamental challenge to the, to the sort of market-based system that, that, that was premised, the premise of, of the, the old system? Well, so one thing that I would say before I answer your question is I think we have to, we, we are all very obsessed about China and to a secondary um, extent India. But if you looked at a pie chart, and I wish I would have brought one with me, of who is the largest trading partner of the US overall, um, by far, it's the EU, um, <clears throat> followed by Canada and Mexico as a block. Um, and it's not to say that China is not significant. They are significant. Um, but we can't let only China drive our entire trade policy. And so I think we do have to deal with these issues. I, I don't disagree with Derek that, um, that, you know, that China has not been um, an actor in the system that I think everybody thought when they negotiated the, the WTO accession of China. Um, I personally believe strongly, having worked also with China for many years, um, that we have uh, a better shot at doing that um, in a muscular way if we aren't totally by ourselves. And I think the difficulty of that approach has been that, um, as somebody was saying that I was speaking with yesterday, a lot of other countries have said, we'll hold your coat while you go into the fray, even if they agree with us. Um, and I think that is something that absolutely has to change. Um, but I, I do not think that um, just completely ignoring the whole system and saying we're going to, um, bec because we have these other problems here, the things that are in that system are no longer valid. I think they're valid, they just aren't sufficient to deal with the, the new things. And so we've got to try to pull people together to figure that out. Will that mean that China's going to um, agree with what that, that you know, decision is? Maybe not, but I think it puts a lot more pressure on China if it's not just the US versus China by itself. Okay, so I do want to bring everybody in, and you're now on the spot. Um, let me first, just to kind of warm you up, ask another simple question. Um, which is a bigger threat to the WTO and the, the system around the WTO? Is the United States the bigger threat or is China the bigger threat uh, today? So if you vote for the US as the bigger threat to the WTO and to the trading order, um, raise your hands. 
okay? If you think China is the bigger threat, raise your hand. But there, come on, you can't not vote. You have to vote. Okay, let me try again. If, if you think you, you have to Don't vote, that's worry. right. You have to vote. <laughs> again, even if it's a 51 49 and you're not really sure, please vote one way or the other just so we can get a sense of the room. Okay, so U.S. is the bigger threat. Raise your hand if you think the U.S. is. Not a single hand, am I correct? No, there's, there's one. Something. I can't see in the there's light. Two. Okay, there are a couple of hands. All right. Um, China. So that, I presume, is everybody else, okay? And there are one or two people who still don't want to vote, but um, okay. Um, all right, with that, let me try and bring people in, and I'm going to call on you if you, don't, if you don't offer, and you can just shout out. We do have microphones, but we're also, I think it's a small enough room that if you just, oh, no, I guess because we're recording this, we do actually need to put this on microphone. But um, just raise your hand, and, and feel free to just respond to any of this. But let me just also ask that as you go along, I'm gonna, we want to try to harvest kind of specific ideas for either reform of the existing system or some new alternative to the existing system. So if you can embed that in your comment more than a question, um, we would very much appreciate that. I saw this gentleman here first, um, I think. Uh, yes, you better wait for it because we have, um, we, we're being recorded. Peter Rashish with AICGS at Johns Hopkins. Um, I want to start out with uh, Derek's comment about, uh, Derek's last comment. I think what you're saying essentially is the, you're saying from an international relations perspective, the United States should see itself no longer as a status quo power, but as a revolutionary power. I think that's a pretty big leap, and I think we have to really think seriously if, if that's really where we want to, be, want to be and be seen. But I do think that it's true that as if, if, which is likely the China challenge grows, the United States is going to, I think, Democrat, Republican, right, left, or center is going to be increasingly tempted to use power-based trade tools so that at least at the minimum there'll be a communications challenge. How do you say? How do you try to do things on the one hand that support the system while at the same time taking some actions that are more power-based? I think that 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 is will take a certain uh, amount of diplomatic uh, finesse to 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 do that at the same time. On the con on recommendations, um, I do think we have to be careful about making all that said making the system and sort of multilateralism per se the value. I think it's what the system, the content in the system, right? You could have an author you could have a rules-based system that has authoritarian rules, right? So I think it's very important that the system, that when we think about the value of the system, that we see how much does it incarnate liberal values or, or not. And and in that point, I think that it's just as important to make sure we're injecting as much liberalism into the system as we can. And it may not be that the WTO is the best place to do that. And that does put a strong value on doing things elsewhere, bilaterally, regionally. But I think it's not just having a system. That's important. It's good to have order and rules. But it's the values that those rules uh, project, you know, the primacy of the, indiv of the individual and private interests over state interests, rule of law, openness, regulated competition, those kind of values are, are just as important as having a system itself. Hi, John Phipps with S&P Global. Um, I think the biggest problem with the WTO is the inability to reform. And I would say that because of the players, the major players in the system are going to resist that reform. I can't see China or India wanting to undertake serious reform. So I think you're just stuck from the very start in trying to do something new and fresh. Uh, at the same time, I think what you have 
are some glaring omissions from the WTO. Um, and ultimately, the two have already been mentioned, which is services, uh, the fact that the WTO doesn't adequately address those, and that is really the heart of U.S. competitiveness. And then the other one is, um, um, gosh, what was the other one? Uh, the need for what essentially is, well, I'd call it, lack of a better way of expressing it, a war on the Internet. Essentially what you have is you have governments all over the world trying to capture data, trying to restrict it. And this is going on despite the WTO. The WTO is not even a player in this. And this is where the real, the real progress, the real um, rules need to be made. And so I think what you're having, you're seeing regulations and standards overtaking all the sort of principles of trade, and they're the ones that are really blocking up the system. Thanks. Hi. Um, so I actually think, I mean, I agree with you both. Um, I think on the one hand, um, blowing up the WTO would just cause such fundamental chaos in our system. And I think it needs to be radically reformed to the extent that we can with, you know, the players that we have. On the other hand, to Derek's point, I think, um, you know, the WTO clearly is not doing a good job and will not be able to do a good job of addressing a lot of the fundamental issues with China and um, a lot of the, certainly the internet issues that um, John raised. So I would like to see a dual strategy of number one, really reforming, serious reform as much as we can of the WTO while you know, pursuing a lot of other options outside the WTO. And clearly, TPP was a move in that direction, right? I mean, we distinctly did it outside the WTO to get um, uh, a coalition of the willing to push for higher standards. And I think on things certainly like digital, I think it's great to have the WTO involved, but we're not going to get anything close to what we need, right? I mean, that's just a given. When you have Russia, I mean, when you have all those players involved, like China, Russia, India, that are just clamping down on, on the internet. And so I would really push for a, 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 a high standards digital agreement outside the WTO and, um, and really pushing as much as we can for the standards we want outside that. And I really think we should do that in as many areas as possible with as many countries as possible while you know simultaneously you know having the WTO as like a floor you think those things are consistent is there not a risk to the to the multilateral system by doing these sort of broken off you know the the principle initially was you know get cover everything have everyone in the room and uh and that was uh, the way to maximize you know welfare but also um, right but we have nafta I mean, we've had agreements out, and every country in the world does, right? I mean, the, the EU has an entire web of agreements. You know, you've got, you've got the, the EU and Japan now. You know, throughout Asia, they've got all sorts of agreements with each other and with the EU, and, and we have, you know, a whole scheme of, of things. So, you know, you've got CPTPP, 
um, and you know the Latins have their agreements. So I, I, you know, we already have a whole panoply of agreements outside the WTO. Um, I would actually advocate that maybe we even look at. I mean, you could imagine down the line uh, if we do a TTIP of sorts. You know, that could be. You know, I mean, the EU Japan agreement already links that CPTPP with TTIP, say that 10 times fast, you know. But, but the point is that I think we need the WTO as a floor, right? This is sort of the base level of, of what gets you to be a, a decent global citizen in the world. But as much as we can with whoever we can in as many areas as we can, you know, we seek to really uh, do what, you know, the right things. And if, if a lot of that ends up excluding China, you know, so be it. You know, we need, um, we need to do that. Okay, pass the mic back. I'm going to take two more questions from that table because I think there were two more hands at this table. And then we're going to pause and let you guys jump in with your reactions to any or all of that. And then we'll go to the other tables. My name is Hampton Dowling. I, I manage my own consulting firm. And um, I, uh, I've always been a fan of uh, Henry Kissinger. He invented the uh, invented. He really articulated the idea about uh, understanding linkages, and I noticed uh, if you take a note of uh, uh, President Trump's uh, calendar, Henry Kissinger uh, visits and talks with uh, Trump quite a bit. Sort of other folks that have a rather contrarian view to the administration and things like. There's a lot of of um, interesting opinions flowing into the administration, and my business takes me from Central Asia. Um, uh, to North Africa and down into Latin America. And my visits, my meetings with senior leadership of these countries, it's interesting how they ask about, uh, they make the, the, the comment uh, that they're not a fan of the WTO and they're very enthusiastic about the U.S. taking a leadership role in bringing up conversations, driving some changes, and revealing warts. And some of them have actually uh, mentioned about uh, linkages and understanding what are the issues that need to be discussed in terms of driving reforms? And my question is if, you know, looking at things in a practical way, you know, are you going to have a trade agreement between the two economies of the world that drive, what, 47% of the world economy, U.S. and China? That agreement, which will probably reveal itself this year, is probably going to drive more changes to global commerce than anything that's occurred since the end of World War II gets back to linkages and leverage. So if you have the reality of a trade agreement between those two economies, you have perhaps the denuclearization or the draft of it in North Korea, and you have the accelerated reclamation and development of islands in the South China Sea. You have this all in the background. How would, and this is the question I would pose, how would the U.S. take a leadership role in driving changes within the WTO? Because that is the organization that's in place. I don't know if we're able to transition from, like we did before, the League of Nations to the United Nations. Here we have the WTO. It is in place, flawed as it is, recognized by so many nations as fundamentally flawed. But it is there. So unless there is the willingness and the leverage in place to establish a new organization at pace, then what would the U.S what would the U.S. do with all these events in the background to drive useful, efficient changes within the WTO 
consistent with in the improvements and rules-based and all those things that a lot of things that uh, Derek was mentioning. If you want to respond to, oh, I didn't see. I, oh, okay. All right, sir. Irv, go ahead. Irving yeah. Williamson, International Trade Commission. Uh, I just want to make a couple of points about, I think, the role of the WTO in dealing with other problems that we have to deal with, such as climate change. And th if you think about how the TRIPS agreement was negotiated, basically, UNESCO, World Intellectual Property Organization, they wrote the substantive rules. What the WTO did said is that you have to apply those rules. Health and safety measures. There are a whole bunch of organizations around the world that set standards for health and safety. And the WTO rules just say you can't misuse those, you can't use those rules to distort trade. So if you think, the WTO has a, a function, but it's not gonna solve the world's problems. A lot of the work that we really need to deal with, particularly on climate change, is not gonna happen in the WTO. The WTO is just gonna make, can make sure that those rules aren't abused to distort trade, and only and we're talking about trade. Um, the other thing, small thing, but you think about failed the the impact of failed states, developing countries that have, you know, maybe are not functioning well. A lot of country developing countries have acceded to the WTO. That process is very rigorous, and also we have a lot more leverage than we had over China. That's helping their development, which is also helping our security because they follow rules of transparency, good governance, and things like that. Otherwise, they don't get into the WTO. Terribly, if you're interested in developing countries, it's a terribly important function. And I've done a lot of work in these countries, so I, I've seen it firsthand. Those are things you just cannot discount. Um, now, some things are just too big for the WTO, and I think there are some trade problems, there are some political problems. And we'll have to accept that, but don't throw out the baby just because you can't solve all the problems with that one institution. Thank okay, you. great, helpful comments. Um, Kathy, Derek, do you want to respond to any of that? You don't have to answer everything, but just thoughts that don't try provoke there. Yeah. That's, that's impossible to answer everything, but I would say, um, just from my perspective, and I hope nobody misunderstood, I'm not, was never, thought or was trying to argue that the WTO is the only game in town. Um, I totally agree with the rep that there's lots of other things going on and um, in play and it's important that those do go on. One question I would pose back though from my years at Apple and looking at all the digital issues is, you know, we all say we need a agreement on these digital issues, got to have it. Um, but. Um, the but for me is, yes, except that the countries that you really want to agree are going to be the ones that are going to be the biggest problems. <laughs> and so I don't know that just saying we want this agreement, it's needed, means that we're actually going to bring people to the table in some fundamentally different way. Um, you know, the problem of the WTO is going to be the problem of any, like, tr trying to get a multilateral agreement on digital issues, for example. It's going to be the same problem if you want all the big participants to come to an agreement. So I think, you know, that that just is out there. Um, how do we do that? Well, you know, those of us who negotiate for a living or did, um, 
you know, it's it's a painful process and it's it's a not a quick process. And so I think whatever we undertake that's going to be on a, a large basis, we're going to get those rocks in the road no matter no matter what we do. Um, and and I I a thousand percent agree with you, um, Irv, about uh, developing countries and the rigorous process. And it's not the WTO as just sort of rules without content, but it is the market opening, transparency, public participation, um, kind of economic-based um, uh, thing that the WTO drives in developing countries that helps to make a difference. Is, it the, is the WTO the reason for globalization? Absolutely not. Um, and I would never try to suggest it is. Um, I think what it does is it can bring some stability, as can these other agreements. And I think I would agree that, you know, you've got to try to get like-minded people and, um, and agree where you can on things and hope that you can, like, continue to enlarge those things. But none of this is a, is a uh, snap your fingers and it's all going to be fine. Okay, great. Derek, fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, Three remarks, two on what is the case and one on what should be the case. Um, what is the case is that the top four finishers in the 2016 election were all opposed to TPP and three of them were protectionists. I, don't, I wouldn't put Hillary Clinton in that camp, but I would put the other three. And Ted Cruz changes his mind quickly about a lot of things. So let's say two and a half. Uh, sorry, Senator Cruz. Uh, I have email from his staffer here, so I was thinking about this. Uh, but he flipped really hard on TPA. So I don't, you know, I, I think you can make a case that we had three out of the last four being protectionist candidates. And certainly um, the winner is a protectionist. So saying that, like, well, we should, you know, not change. Too bad. Change has been made. And maybe it'll switch in 2020, but right now we have to act as if the U.S. is no longer satisfied with the status quo. Um, certainly, I testified on six times in front of Congress uh, last year. I think of myself as being pretty aggressively critical of the status quo. Congress was outflanking me on a bipartisan basis. Not critical enough. You're not critical enough. So um, maybe this is temporary. You can bet on that. But right now, the U.S. Uh, is, there's very strong U.S. pressure to change the status quo and not in minor ways. Um, for the interest of time, maybe I'll switch. I'll just skip over to the to the what we should do. And just on, the, on, on what we should do, I, I, I mean, I'm sort of an idealist. If you think we should do something, then okay, let's, let's fight for that regardless of prevailing political wins. But the WTO is not going to fix what I think are the major problems. It's not. There's no point saying it's gonna take a long time or you know, we should try it and wouldn't it be good if this is going to happen. The point of my initial presentation, it will not happen. Now, if you wanna say there are other positive things about the WTO that outweigh those, we have a different assessment of American interests, that's fine. But let's not pretend that we're going to get you know, changes from the Chinese and from the Indians on what I consider to be the key issues in globalization now, not 20 years ago, not 40 years ago now. So that's, that's the only caution I would say. What, what should, we have different agreements, different views about what should happen, and you know, you, you could be absolutely right. But don't pretend that we're going to make progress in areas we're not gonna make progress on. WTO has been dead for more than a decade. Come on, don't pretend it's gonna be like come back to life now. Okay. Um, all right. I saw this this table at the back, and, I, and we, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to harvest these questions very quickly and then give you each like a minute at the end. So the gentleman in the back, then I saw Amy, and then was there anybody on this side of the room? Okay, a gentleman there. So I have a very simple question. 
Um, one of the oldest arguments for freer trade is that a rising tide lifts all boats. And so my question is, should the United States continue to be a part or continue to support an organization which includes our strategic rivals and thus will lift their boats, so to speak? Uh, that's a good question, um, and that's fundamental. I mean, you know, the premise of the original order was that, that you know, the rising, well, just what you said. Um, and so I guess the question is, you know, that, that's fundamental, and that's something maybe we'll circle back to in a sort of audience question at the end. Um, Amy. And, and please offer, as you could, again, any thoughts about what specifically we should do here, either in reform or in starting over. Uh, Amy Selico from Albright Stonebridge Group. I, I, I do have a, a specific question for you both, and I'm wondering if the WTO is going to offer any action-forcing events um, to either overcome you know, the premise that we should ignore the WTO or to help us really push for reform. And, and so the two um, cases that are before the WTO are, of course, the many countries that are suing the U.S. over the 232, and then, of course, market economy status for China. And I'm just wondering, when we think about, Matt, ways forward, um, are either of those cases going to offer a, a reckoning of sorts? The United States saying, I'm gonna, we're going to withdraw from the WTO if you rule against us on, on you know, having the sovereignty, the ability to protect our own national security the way we see fit, and on market economy status, which many of us believe was baked into the WTO accession agreement um, with China when they joined, that they were actually going to make enough changes to become, be considered a market economy at the end of a very long road. Um, so that is my question. The other point I, I would uh, just like to make while I have the microphone is I agree with Arit that the, the WTO, of course, is the floor for us as we think about what can we do with the, with the global trading system, um, particularly when, you know, our two large economies have such divergent views on so many issues and so many similar views, like using national security uh, to bleed into economic policy making. And so, uh, you know, again, um, the question to you, the comment from me being, how do we limit that without infringing on sovereignty? And is there a role at the WTO specifically for that question? I think tying back to, will the 232 case really be an action-forcing event? All right, good comment. And then there's a gentleman here. So sustained. More. Tom Suber, formerly with the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Um, my, my opinion to throw into this and then a couple of suggestions at the end is that we're moving too fast to come to a definite idea of what we should change. You talk about Xi Jinping being a, or China being a disruptor. They are a disruptor. President Trump is a disruptor. I think if, uh, if Xi Jinping had not been the president uh, at that time, that a market economy and or developed economy would have been the natural outgrowth as originally uh, adopted um, um, uh, when the WTO, when they came in. So I think we're in a period of disruption. Both are trying to disrupt the system for their own advantage. Um, I think we have a lot more to gain to stay. And I think while we figure out exactly what these solutions are, we should take the tools we have, which is to say crank up the dispute settlement process. The U.S. wins more than it loses. 
uh, we should use those tools, we should add those things where we can, uh, and continue to try to uh, figure out exactly what disruption is for the long term. This is, of course, what the Chinese have done. I think we're moving too fast here to think we need to fix it now. We need to figure this out. Secondly, in terms of two suggestions um, to worry, uh, to think about here, one is where's the consensus on it? I think companies, and I used to head a trade association, a lot of companies involved in trade, they did not talk to their employees about the importance of trade. Unless you have employees understanding it and talking to their neighbors who may or may not understand or be hurt by it, then you don't get any grassroots spread. Uh, and then secondly, well, I guess I give my suggestion about dispute settlement, so that's what I would suggest to go forward. Great. Were there other hands that I can't see because of the lights? Uh, there's a woman there, or Faye? Faye, right here, the woman with gray. Uh, Fei Yu from the Asian Development Bank. Uh, I just I agree with uh, what has been said, but I just want to caution about uh, uh, the harm of trying to push too hard on the w WTO reform. If, like the idea of the floor, if you can keep the keep the framework going, there's a lot of benefits of having the conversation, having the negotiation hap happening under this platform. If you drive the rules too hard, if you ramp up enforcement, and that may cause some breakup, like if one country draws uh, withdraw from the WTO, that's more harm than having everybody in there already. And a lot of the issues that, uh, especially the big players, are really much better dealt with under bilateral frameworks. For example, the China problem, you, it's, the trade issue is linked really with the investment issue. So you can't really have these issues addressed under the WTO. So rather than having everything addressed in one place, it may even be better just have w, WTO as a, a, a mechanism with very selective enforcement, as, so with some flexibility, so that it won't drive countries away from it. Great comments, and we've got, I think, two and a half minutes, and we have a hard deadline at 11.45, right? No? The walls are going to start coming up, and things, or scary things are going to start happening. Um, okay, I, I'm going to give each of uh, these folks a chance to, to sort of wrap up, although, you know, I really do want audience participation, so if there are other ideas, even as I'm now sort of stalling here, um, I'd welcome more hands. I, but let me ask a question to the group that'll maybe prompt that, which is um, sort of a variation on my original theme, picking up on what Amy and the Rising Tides gentleman said, um, which is, um, you know, again, a vote here. Do, do you think that the sort of the, the fundamental kind of deal in the WTO was, we'll cede a little sovereignty, tie our hands in order to get everybody else to tie their hands, um, you know, to our sort of net benefit, um, even though, and in, as part of that, uh, rising all boats, okay, helping rise all boats. Um, that was sort of the premise of the thing. Is that still fundamentally in the U.S. interest, um, or is that a raw deal for the United States? Is, is in some way we're, we're not getting the net benefit of, of that sort of trade-off, if I've characterized appropriately what the kind of basic deal was that we, uh, we sacrifice a little sovereignty in order for everybody else to sacrifice sovereignty, and we have net benefit, and so do others, and all tides, all boats rise. Um, so if you think that that's sort of the basic fundamentals of that deal is still a good thing for the United States on a net basis, please raise your hand. If, if you think that that basic approach is still a good thing. Okay, um, that's interesting. Uh, on the other end, I want to challenge you on, on why you raise your hand. Um, if, you, if you think that's a raw deal and it's not working for us, um, for, for Americans and for the United States, then raise your hand. 
no, kind of one or the, <laughs> at least, uh, all right, DL, uh, go ahead, DL. Let, let DL have a microphone and let him explain that. I know, but. Yeah, no, I actually agree that that was the original thought in the deal. So I, I raised my hand, but is it still working to me? That's another question. And on that score, I think, no, we got a raw deal, but what we thought we were getting, I, I agree with that. We, we thought that, but it didn't. Okay, no, I'm, so I'm talking about today, like, is it still working? Whether it worked oh, or not okay. in the past, okay. today, is that deal s still working? For, uh, for the United States. And so if you, if you don't think it's working, can you raise your hands again? If you think it's a raw deal and, and we're kind of losing out from this, this deal. Uh, and so there are a few hands here, but okay. Uh, maybe Irv had another thought and then this woman here, and then we're gonna let these guys really wrap up and hopefully the walls won't literally start coming Just up. Just briefly, because I think it goes to Derek's criticism. I think the greatest threat to the U.S. competitiveness is failure to do economic reform, deal with in, in, income inequality and those issues. Here, yeah. And yeah, a good trade policy starts with a good uh, domestic economic policy. Yep. So I think that's the big picture. Yep. I yep, I agree. That's a good point. Uh, this lady here. Yeah, just uh, have a question. Uh, hold on. Just wait one sec because they can't hear you online if, if you don't have a microphone. Thanks. Uh, and Armin Molazade from Cochin Law Group. Uh, I just recently joined uh, the group, so I'm really not very, very professional and familiar as auditory. But you mentioned in your comment that generally we're giving money and we're supposed to be kind of leader in that. Didn't, didn't you think that it will be if we will start kind of making more pressure than China and Russia, which they tilting to go to cryptocurrency. So what we're going to do in this case? If, uh, oh, okay, Crypt sorry, do you finish the question? Yes. Okay, uh, I, I, that's a big topic and something that you, I know you've got a lot to say on, but I, I don't wanna, that's gonna take too much time, a little bit off topic. It's a good question and it's something that we're all kind of thinking about and working on. Um, all right, one more and then that's gonna be the end and then I'm gonna take the- um, Ranch is gonna come in here and kill you. That's right, no, he's not, he's not <laughs> waving his arms yet, so I think we're okay. Hi, thanks for the very interesting discussion so far. I'm curious, um, Derek, I haven't heard the um, suggestion before that the US or anyone just ignore the WTO. And I'd be really interested in hearing you step through your thinking on what perhaps, say, the second and third order effects of that kind of approach might be when you take into account, say, the potential responses of other countries um, to the US ignoring the WTO, whether that's the US ignoring their commitments or ignoring um, the dispute settlement function and their ability to enforce their own rights. Um, and also, I guess the third angle is the, the development of rules. How do you think those countries will react and therefore what, what the impact will be for, for the US? Why do you not see that as a problem? Okay, um, thank you. Okay, that's um, all we can take from the audience, but uh, I want to give you guys each a uh, chance to say maybe um, you you know, 90 seconds. All right. It'll allow us. So um, the first thing I'd say is the U. Uh, the, I can't answer your question until we know what the U.S. thinks, and that gets back to my unilateral side. We're in a state of change in our approach to trade for good reason. 
Uh, it, may not, it may be exploited by people saying silly things. Uh, I don't know who I could be possibly be talking about, uh, but it, there are good reasons for this. Uh, the world doesn't just not change from, 19, from Bretton Woods start to now so that we keep the same institutions. So my answer to you is how are we going to abuse the system? And this gets back to Amy's point. Uh, as well. When we ignore the WTO, because I don't see any value in just trying to dis actively destroy it, unless the WTO says China's a market economy. And I'm not disagreeing with you that we may have embedded that agreement, except it's a lie. China is not a market economy. So I don't want to be part of an organization that binds American policy with a lie that actually matters. If they want to say Bolivia is a market economy, maybe I don't care, but not China. So, you know, at the same time, I don't want us abusing national, the national security exemption for 232. So I'm sitting, you know, I disagree uh, with members of Congress who, you know, we agree 100% on one thing and completely disagree on another. We haven't settled where we're going. If we haven't settled where we're going, I can't answer your question about what the secondary violations are going to be. I'll give you ground. I am not saying that ignoring the WTO has no consequences. I'm not saying there isn't gonna be a blowback to the US, but I don't know what it is, because the first thing we need to do is fix our own house with regard to economic policy, but also with regard to what we wanna do on trade. And that's why, I, you know, maybe if I, if I were to, I, I know I have to stop. Here's a compromise position of sorts. Ignore the WTO in the sense of putting it aside. Decide what we wanna do here. Go back to the WTO, you know, don't pretend we're gonna reform it, it's not gonna happen. But, but decide what we wanna do here without prejudice or, or, or bias in favor of the WTO. Uh, that's that's the, ar the alternative I'm arguing for. And once we decide what we wanna do here, I can tell you what the costs are. I don't think there should be any costs for not saying China's a market economy, because it's not a market economy. I think there will be costs if we start abusing the national security exemption. But in either case, I wanna go with what the US consensus is, and it's not the same thing as it was 20 years ago. Great, excellent. Kat. Um, well, I, I think that um, it really isn't an either or. I think it is a, an and. And so to me, it is, you know, we need to, I would agree, we need to think about what's in our interest. I think we need to base that on facts and looking at our economy, ourselves, and then uh, and then saying, okay, what are the tools we have, and using those tools, and and you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna build a structure, you don't only just use a jackhammer; you use lots of uh, tools to build things. And so, similarly, the WTO is one of those tools, and there's lots of other ones. And I think we have to think about how do we use those in a way that is going to better our own interest. And I guess I would argue that. Um, I do still think that a rising tide does lift all boats and that we, we, need to, we need to think about that. Just one last thing I would say, and that is um, I started listening for America because of the um, seeming support for protectionism that, that came uh, from the election and from those who are running. And I wanted to find out, you know, is that really what people think? And Granted, I have not talked to every single voter, um, but interestingly, I have found out that that is not what people really think. Um, instead, uh, people are extremely unsettled by trade wars, and um, mostly people just want to know what the facts are, and they feel they don't know those. Um, and so, you know, riding to the sound of the guns, and, you know, that all gets everybody's blood boiling, but in the end of the day, um, I just haven't found a whole lot of people who, um, who are saying, yeah, yeah, let's go blow everything up. That's just what we found so far. 
Excellent. Okay. Lots uh, to think about there. Lots of food for thought. Impossible to summarize, and I have to do that in the next session. So anybody have any suggestions about how to summarize it, please come to me during the uh, lunch break. We're now supposed to go up to the um, Sam Nunn Terrace and collect a lunch box, or is it a buffet? I'm not sure. Anyway, there's lunch up there, and you can bring it uh, back once the once the uh, walls have come up again, you can come back in here and eat it at the table. And then we're going to start again at 1220 or something, 1220. We're going to resume up here. Oh, you can come right back in. The walls, oh, going up is not dangerous, I see. All right, good. Thanks, Bill. All right, thank you.